Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. I'm covering Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 through 22 concerning the church of Laodicea. Our context is this. In the first 13 verses of chapter 3, we cover the church of Sardis and the church of Philadelphia. So we start now in verse 14, Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Well, who's saying this? That's Jesus in the vision, talking to John. It tells John, tell the messenger, the angel of the church, I'm assuming that's the messenger, tell the messenger to go run up to Laodicea and give them this message. Now, Laodicea, where is it located? It's the last on the so-called mail route as you go through the seven churches of Revelation, starting at Ephesus and then going north and a little bit east to Smyrna, and then you go due west to Sardis, and then you go a little bit southwest of Philadelphia, and then you come on down to Laodicea. If you look at Miletus on the map and follow the Meander River west or eastward into the interior of Anatolia for a couple hundred miles, I don't know how many miles it is. Let's see, I would say about about a couple hundred miles, maybe a hundred miles. I don't know. But as you head, you end up in what some people think is Phrygia and so on a border. Phrygia, the boundaries of these ancient provinces shifted a lot. So most people say it's in Phrygia. And... You go up the Meander River, and then the Lycus River branches off from the Meander and runs a little bit east, southeast, and then you hit Laodicea. You go 11 miles further, and you hit Colossae, the famous city where Paul had a church there and wrote to the Colossians. And then across the river, north, about six miles or so, is Hierapolis. Now, I'll explain why those cities, the neighboring cities, are kind of interesting uh, as we as we go on. Now, Laodicea was the wealthiest city in that region. It was an important center of emperor worship. It was one of the most important cities in the ancient world for selling of eye salve. And Bruce Gore says that salve probably worked. In other words, it was eye salve that actually fixed your eyesight. The only water available to Laodicea was from an aqueduct bringing water from about 30 miles away, says Gore. I've read on Wikipedia some of the water came from Laodicea wasn't Wikipedia, it was somewhere else, but some of the water came from Colossae, the cold water, and warm water came from Hierapolis, and they got water from two different sources. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it wasn't very cold coming from Colossae because it had to go so far, and the hot water coming from Hierapolis, by the time it got to Laodicea, it wasn't very hot because it had to go so far. The Laodiceans had gotten used to that lukewarm water, but the rest of the world hated it. The area was often subject to earthquakes. According to Wikipedia, it was completely destroyed in 60 A.D., the city. They were so wealthy that the Roman Empire's assistance was refused, and they rebuilt the city with their own money. They were noted for their wealth. They were also noted for their love of Greek science and literature. There was a great medical school there. There were many Jewish families there. Twenty pounds of gold were sent annually to the temple in Jerusalem. This is very common. There were Jewish families all over the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. Laodicea was mentioned by Paul in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 4.13 says this, For I, Paul, testify about him, Epaphras, that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Those are the three cities there in that area. Now, Jesus identifies himself as the Amen. Now, you might think, well, what is the Amen? We say Amen to just say we're finished. We agree with something, like so be it. Oh, I hope that so-and-so wins the election. Amen means I agree with you. Well, it means that, actually, but it's stronger than that. It means 
to call down over oneself the curses of the covenant. Now, this is from David Chilton. This is very interesting. So we're going to do a little rabbit trail here and do a Bible study on amen. And as we go through this, notice how amen is saying, yes, curses be on you. Numbers 5, 21 and 22. This is the trial by ordeal of the adulterous woman. Then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people, when the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels. That was the water that they mixed with the sand from the temple floor. To make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. In other words, yes, the curse be on me if I'm an adulteress. The curse be on me. Deuteronomy 27:15 through 26. Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed on this man that makes a golden, a graven image. And we go on in Deuteronomy 27, verse 16. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be on the man who doesn't honor his father or mother. Verse 17, Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be the one that removes his neighbor's landmark. Verse 18, Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed on that person that leads a blind man astray. Verse 19, Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger, fatherless and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Curses, curses be on the head of someone who screws the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Verse 20, Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife, his mother-in-law, or excuse me, his stepmother, because he uncovereth his father's skirt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Curses be on the man who sleepeth with his stepmother. Verse 21, Cursed be he that lieth with any manner of beast. And all the people shall say, Amen. On anybody that sleeps with his horse or his sheep. 22, Cursed be he that lieth with his sister, the daughter of his father, that would probably be a stepsister, or the daughter of his mother, and all the people should say amen on the person who's sleeping with his stepsister. 23, Cursed be he that lieth with his mother-in-law, and all the people should say amen, cursed be the man that lies with his mother-in-law. 24, Cursed be he that smiteth his neighbor secretly, and all the people should say amen on the person who does his neighbor wrong, by hitting him, I guess. Verse 25, Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent purpose person. And all the people shall say, Amen, curses on a hit man. Verse 26, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say, Amen, on those who break the law. Let me give you another verse in Nehemiah 5, 12 and 13. Then said they, We will restore them and will require nothing of them, so we will do as thou sayest. Then I called the priest and took an oath of them, and they should do according to the promise. Also, I shook my lap and said, So God, shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise, and thus be shaken out and emptied. Nehemiah is complaining here about people who have taken usurious interest from their Jewish brethren. And all the congregation said, Amen. Curses on the people who are taking usurious interest. So when Jesus says he's the Amen, he's saying, Hey, cursed be those who do not listen to my words. The amen, the faithful and true witness, faithful options as to who he could be faithful to, to the truth, but Jesus testifies as to the truth, could be, or could be faithful to his followers, trustworthy. 
through the faithful and true witness. That means he's an authentic witness. He's a real witness. True can have two senses. True is in the sense of not false. Also true as in the sense of not imaginary. At any rate, he meets the qualifications of a witness. Obviously, he's Jesus. He's a witness, he says, the faithful and true witness. Jesus is coming to bear witness against his church, Laodicea. Now, witnesses participated in executing criminals, as you know from Old Testament law. So witness is another judicial term in addition to amen. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm coming, Laodicea. You better be careful. You better repent because I'm coming. Little Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus also calls himself the beginning. The beginning of the creation of God. That means he created it. He created the universe. There's, I wish I had the verse. I think it's in Colossians where he says he's the creation of he in him whom all things hold together. That verse in Colossians. Anyway, Jesus is the creator just as God is the creator. They co-created, if you will. And so when Jesus says he's the beginning of all creations, he's saying, listen to me. You don't mess with me. I made the whole world, the whole universe. So maybe you ought to listen to what I say. Revelation 3.15, Jesus says, I know your deeds. He's still speaking to John. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. He's referring to the Laodiceans, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, as I said earlier, Laodicea was situated between two other cities, Colossae and Hierapolis. Colossae was situated on a mountain, and Laodicea was, or Colossae was watered by icy streams that tumbled down from the heights on the mountain, and there was an aqueduct that carried that icy cold water to Laodicea, which is about 11 miles away. But by the time the water got there, it had lost its coldness. And then Hierapolis, Hierapolis, Hierapolis which was six miles north of the Lycus, across the Lycus River, six miles north of Laodicea. It was famous for hot mineral springs flowing out of the city over a cliff which faced Laodicea. And so they piped the water in from there also, but by the time that water got there, it was lukewarm. It lost its heat. So the water was lukewarm, putrid, and nauseating. <laughs> so the water wasn't good for your health. It wasn't hot like hot springs, and it wasn't good for drinking. It wasn't cold like ice-cold water. So basically, Jesus is saying, the layout in St. Church, you are good for nothing. You're not good for anything. You're not good for refreshment, and you're not good for healing. Now, this interesting phrase that Jesus says next needs to be examined. I wish that you were either cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, think about that. We often interpret that verse as saying, you are lukewarm spiritually in your spiritual life, and you need to be warm and hot in your spiritual life. But Jesus says, I wish that you were cold or hot. He's giving you an option of being spiritually cold or being spiritually warm. That makes no sense. He would never wish that. So what he's really saying here is, I wish that you would be useful either by bringing refreshment, cold water, or by bringing healing, hot water. In other words, be useful. He's not saying, I wish that you would be cold spiritually or hot spiritually. We go down to verse 16, Revelation 3. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That word spit also means to spew you out of my mouth or to vomit you out of my mouth. little translation with a little more punch. Let's look at Leviticus 18.25 and we'll see what the land of Israel would do to those who defile it. And the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. So the land of Israel could vomit, could spit out its inhabitants. This is probably the Old Testament reference that John is, that Jesus is referring to here. Now, this spitting you out of my mouth, or this 
excuse me, in Leviticus 18.25, this land spitting out her inhabitants, that's a foretaste. The allusion to that is a foretaste of the upcoming seal and trumpet and chalice judgments coming upon the land of Israel, where the land of Israel will spew the people out in judgment, which, of course, is one of the themes of of Revelation, the judgment upon the land of Israel, the apostate Israel, for killing Jesus. Revelation 3.17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. How'd you like to be called poor and blind and naked by your Lord? This church must have really been a piece of work. Now, John is referring to the economic characteristics of Laodicea as he speaks. He says, church, you're poor. But Laodicea was a very wealthy banking and financial center. So he's drawing an ironic contrast. Yeah, your city's rich, but you guys are poor spiritually. And you're blind. Well, Laodicea was famous for an eye They called it Phrygian powder. I mentioned this earlier. It had been well known since the days of Aristotle. And Laodicea was also famous for its scientific community and its medical schools. Well, they could work on your eyes. But Jesus said, contrary to that, you are spiritually blind and you're naked. Well, Laodicea was famous for its textile industry. Laodicea produced world-famous, very fine quality of black, glossy wool. And Jesus says, besides that, Laodicean church, you're naked. Because you say, I have rich and become wealthy. Again, that's, they probably had adapted the characteristics of their surrounding culture. And let me tell you, there is nothing worse than churches that soak up their surrounding culture. Every church does it, and every church needs to guard against it. I remember talking to a Chinese convert of mine that I've been keeping up with for about eight years now. She's Chinese, and she worries and worries about the future. And I'm telling her she's violating Jesus' commands in the Summer on the Mount about not worrying. And she says, but there's a Chinese proverb that says that if you don't cut firewood now, when it's, I forgot how the proverb went, when you have the opportunity, when, it, when you need to burn it in the wintertime, you won't have it. And I say, well, that kind of proverb is somewhere in the, in the Bible, too, in the book of Proverbs. But you can't let Chinese culture and what you learn in your Chinese background trump what Jesus said. And everybody does that with their culture. The culture is always more important than Jesus. I mean, everybody has to fight that. The Laodiceans had to fight it too. Ah, they had it made. They were rich. They were wealthy. Reminds me of some mega churches I know in America that are poor and blind and naked. And I would urge anybody that's in such a church to exit stage right. Revelation 3.18. Jesus continues telling John to tell the angel, the messenger, to tell Laodicea, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Now, he means spiritually rich. They are already physically rich, financially rich, but they need to be spiritually rich. And white garments. Buy some white garments from Jesus so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Now, Jesus is going from physical objects to spiritual reality here. He says, buy, lay out a sea and buy from Jesus. And, of course, that just means get it from Jesus. doesn't mean you have to pay him anything for it. Just get from Jesus some gold. Gold means true faith, genuine works of obedience. 1 Peter 1, 7, Let the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, refined with fire. So there gold is talked about. It doesn't perish. Well, it does, excuse me, it does perish, even though it's refined with fire. And of course, gold refined by fire. Fire is a common symbol for purification. Gold is a very precious metal that's heavy and solid, and everybody loves it. So that's what Jesus is saying. That's the kind of spiritual stuff you should have, stuff that's tested, pure. 
not adulterated with the dross of this world, spiritual gold, so that you become spiritually rich. And white garments, white, of course, stands for righteousness as opposed to soiled garments. Revelation 19.8, we read this. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. This is the church. Clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Righteousness of saints. So that fine linen will, of course, correct their nakedness or fix it. You need some white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Remember, he just finished telling them they were naked in verse 17. So it says you need some clothes. This, of course, is just like Adam and Eve needed some clothes. Genesis 3:21. Unto Adam also said, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them because they were naked in their sin. The nakedness came about because of their disobedience. And so Jesus is saying, you need to clothe yourselves because you're disobediently out of sin, church. Genesis 3, 7, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So nakedness is connected with shame and disobedience. And the shame comes because we're disobedient, because Christians are disobedient. Well, you don't want to be, you don't want to be shown naked. That's embarrassing, Laodiceans, and you or a naked church right now, you need to clothe yourselves with righteousness, white garments, and also buy from Jesus some eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. And of course, that see means spiritually see, not physically see. Blindness is a symbol for man's impotence and fullness and spiritual obtuseness. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 13, 13, 14, and 15, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand and the eye salve that's going to help them see, of course, Jesus is referring to that famous Phrygian powder, the eye salve that Laodicea was famous for selling. So this is kind of neat how the historical background of the churches fits right in with Jesus' exhortation, how he uses the physical as a symbol of the spiritual. And by the way, the details are so close to Laodicea, this shows that John is writing to a to an historical church. He's not talking about some kind of church age of apostasy and lukewarmness and let's get ready for the antichrist and it's all going to happen at the end of time as all the christians fall away from the faith and there's a great apostasy and we can just sit hunkered down in our basements waiting for the end not polishing the rails of a sinking ship i think you know who i'm talking about let's go to revelation 3:19. those whom i love i reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent now this is interesting jesus has just read then the riot act amen i'm going to come to curse you I'm a witness. I'm a witness against your sin. You're naked. You're poor. You're blind. But I love you. Because he says in Revelation 3:19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He wouldn't be wasting time on this church unless he cared about them, unless he knew that there was a future for them, that there was a possibility of their repentance. So he says, be zealous and repent. In other words, don't just be lackadaisical about repenting and say, ho-hum, I'm so sorry, Jesus. No, get on your knees and start begging and wailing, beating your breast, begging for mercy. Repent. Repent, of course, means turn around and don't do it anymore. Jesus is just like a father who wants his children to amend their ways. If you have a child who insists on throwing his food from the supper table on the floor, aren't you happy when he quits doing that and he repents of it? You say, wonderful little boy. Well, Jesus is the same way. He's happy when his children repent. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. Now, of course, this is the famous evangelistic verse, and I will point out to you before we even get started that the verse is wrenched totally from its context. 
and made to say something it was never meant to say. This verse has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus knocking at the door of an individual sinner asking if Jesus might be allowed to come in. John here, or Jesus here, is asking an entire already saved church to repent not of their unbelief in Christ, but because of their lukewarmness. So that has nothing to do with evangelism, because the people that Jesus is talking to says he'll come in and dine with them. They're already saved. He's asking them to repent of their sins. The reward for that repentance is feasting with Jesus. No church should have any fear of repenting. Remember, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. He loves you. That's why when you repent, he's going to say, come on, let's eat a feast. Look, remember the story of the prodigal son? That man repented and his father said, come on, let's have a feast. Let's have a fatted calf. So the reward for repentance is feasting with Jesus. We should always I know it's embarrassing when you sin. You go to the Lord and you're just ashamed of it. You don't even want to talk to him about it. You don't want to tell him about it because you're so ashamed. Just tell him, I screwed up, Jesus, and he will completely and utterly forgive you. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians ever. He was taking Christians and judicially executing them, taking them to court and persecuting them to the death, as he says in Acts, the end of Acts, persecuting Christians to the death. Jesus took him and used him. Or he's probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. So, nothing wrong with repenting, nothing to fear of repenting. He loves you. Revelation 3, 21 and 22, we'll finish the chapter. He who overcomes, and there's that word overcomes again, is used over and over again to the letters of the churches. Why? Because they were facing persecution. They were facing trouble from within, heresy within, lukewarmness within, persecution without, synagogues of Satan, persecuting from the Jews, persecution from the Romans. But over and over again, we see this word, overcomes being victorious. You're not going to go down, church. Why? Because Jesus will never leave or forsake his children. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now let's take these two words, sat, throne. First of all, notice the tense. Sat is past tense. So when Jesus said, I sat down with my father on his throne, that means Jesus is on the throne when? At his resurrection. He's sitting on his throne now. He's not ruling sometime in the millennial kingdom in the future. He's sitting on his throne now. Sat, past tense. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat, S-A-T, past tense, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The throne, of course, is where God rules from, and Jesus is right there at the right hand of God. That's the place of authority, kind of like a prime minister, and he's ruling with authority, too. He's already on his throne now. So Jesus is making a comparison of his overcoming. He says, as I also overcame, when did he overcome? Well, he was put in the grave, and he was resurrected from it, and then he ascended and sat down with his father. That's some overcoming. So he uses the perfect example of overcoming. He said, hey, I overcome, you can overcome, too. And guess what happens when you overcome? You will sit down with Jesus on his throne. Now, when does that happen? Well, Jesus is already on his throne now, as we just said. We are on Jesus' throne now. I'm not talking about in the future, in some future millennium. Now, in the church age, N-O-W, now, we are on, we are with Jesus, who is sitting on his heavenly throne as the king of the universe. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That which refers to the, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. So that power he brought about in Christ, that's past tense, when? 
he raised him from the dead. So that's when the power came, is when God raised Jesus from the dead. And seated, there's that past tense of the verb to sit. He seated him, past tense, at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Jesus is already there, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, so he's there in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, again, I don't want to be so preterous that I deny that Jesus is going to rule in the future. He's not going to rule in the millennial kingdom because that doesn't exist except in the minds of pre-mill theologians. But but in the final state, he's going to rule there too. But it's also, it says, not only in this age, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, not only in this age. So he's ruling now in this age because he has been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Just like Jesus told John in his address to the Laodicean, Laodicean church, I have sat down, I have overcome and sat down, past tense, at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 22 in Ephesians 1, and he put, past tense, all things in subjection under his feet, and gave, past tense, him his head over all things to the church. Jesus is ruling now. All things are in subjection under his feet. Now you say, yeah, but the devil, the devil, the devil. And all these people that hate Christ and they're shaking their fist at Christ. Well, yeah, Jesus is engaged in mopping up operations. But the church is spreading, folks. All everything the devil's throwing at it, the church just keep right on spreading despite our weaknesses, despite our heresies, despite our lukewarmness, despite our nonsense. Church keeps right on growing. Acts two, twenty nine through thirty one. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, this is Peter speaking that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead. This is He's quoting David here in a psalm. So God swore to David that one of David's descendants, i.e. Jesus, was going to be sat upon his throne. When? In the millennium in the future? No. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That's when Jesus was going to be put on the throne, at the time of the resurrection that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay, which, of course, is referring to the resurrection. That's when Jesus sat on his throne. Why in the world? Now, I, I read somewhere that progressive dispensationalists at Dallas Seminary have now come to the conclusion that actually Jesus is sitting on his throne now, not in the future millennium. I was so happy to see that. You know, it's just so nice if you keep your mind from being polluted by false theology, you don't have to spend half your life trying to get rid of it, because it's hard to get rid of something once you've adopted it. It's like learning how to play tennis with the wrong hand grip. It's just real hard to change. But they changed. God bless them for it. Because Jesus is sitting on his throne now. And we're seated on his throne with him now. Here's some scriptures that show that Christians are on the throne ruling as kings now. Capital N, capital O, capital W. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive, that's past tense, made us alive together with Christ, of course, that's by getting saved, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Raised, past tense, seated, past tense, it's already happened, folks. When he made you alive, you were raised up and seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. You have a position of co-rulership, of co-dominion, and co-authority with Jesus Christ. I don't mean, I'm not, you're not blasphemous, but Jesus has delegated that authority to you. Revelation 1.6, this is John speaking, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The subject of the hath made us kings is Jesus. So Jesus has made us kings and priests unto God his Father. So we're a king. Well, what does a king do? He rules. 
there's some, I don't want to sound like I'm a theonomist, you know, because I don't believe in that nonsense, but uh, we do have spiritual dominion on this earth. And one day we're going to have physical dominion too, once sin is completely abolished by the return of Jesus Christ. And won't that be a wonderful day? He has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Made us to be a kingdom, as the textual variant says in the NASB, or made us kings. He's either made us a kingdom or kings. It doesn't make any difference. We're a kingdom now. Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Well, that's the verse we're on now, just in the King James. It's the same thing. If you overcome, you're going to sit and rule with God on his throne. Here's some scriptures showing that Christians wear crowns. And if you wear crowns, what does that mean? It means you're a king because that's what a crown stands for. It's a symbol of dominion and authority. Revelation 2.10. Be thou, he's referring to the Smyrna church at Smyrna, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. And then in Revelation 3.11, talking to the Philadelphian church, hold that fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown. So these weak and struggling churches are said to have dominion to have a crown. In other words, they need to walk into that which was given them as they fall short in this life, as we all do. But then we need to remember we have dominion and authority. We have crowns. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, of course, that's said of Jesus at the end of Revelation. Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But notice here in Revelation 2, it's the church. Well, actually, more specifically, it was the church at Thyatira. The church at Thyatira that overcomes and keeps his works, to him will I give power over the nations, or to a member of the church at Thyatira. Of course, we can broaden that application to us, too. Christians are going to rule the church, rule the world with a rod of iron. That doesn't mean we're going to beat people over the head with a rod of iron. A rod of iron is just a scepter, a symbol of rulership. And, of course, it does not mean political rulership. It means spiritual Revelation 3, 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do not lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. So there are people going to bow down. The persecuting Jews of the synagogue of Satan are going to bow down to the church at Philadelphia. That means rulership, authority. Revelation 5, 10, And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. On the earth, folks, not just in heaven, but on the earth. We have been made kings and priests and the subject there is the lamb or jesus jesus has made us under our god kings and priests he's made us kings and what do kings do they reign and where do they reign on the earth that ought to make us a little bit more confident as we watch the foaming at the mouth antichrist running around screaming at us from the media from hollywood from big tech corporations from new york city and from other hotbeds of ignorance and apostasy and antichrist activity, hey, they're not going to rule the world. Christians are going to rule the world. Luke 22, verses 29 through 30. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. Oh, Jesus is granting a kingdom to whom? You, he's talking to his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. So Jesus has granted his 12 apostles a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the apostles are going to be head of the church, Israel here is a symbol. The old Israel is a symbol of the new Israel, the church. And so Jesus has granted a kingdom. Now, this is a spiritual kingdom. He's not saying, you know, go run for office and you go make everybody a Christian. No, it's not what he's saying. So let me summarize all that. If Jesus is on the throne now and we are seated with Jesus on the throne now, what are the implications of that? 
we are co-rulers with Christ now. So be a little more confident when you're praying for that unsaved one or somebody that's sick or some relationship problem. Everything's gone wrong. Your job situation, your boss situation. This world is so full of garbage, so full of evil. But you have been made to be an overcomer by the word of God and by Jesus who lives in you. Because notice this, Jesus said, look, I overcame death. Is anything worse than that? All of your problems, anything worse than than death? Let me read that again for you in our verse here, verse 22. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Well, how did Jesus overcome? He rose from the dead. Anything worse than that? Jesus expects you to overcome all your life difficulties. He said in the book of Hebrews, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Remember, one of the themes of the book of Revelation is overcoming and comfort in the time of persecution. And Jesus gives comfort in spades. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, you're not going to understand all this kingly dominion authority that you have unless you hear from the Spirit. You can read it right here in the book of Revelation, but you need to have the Spirit apply it to your heart. And then you will become an overcoming Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished Revelation 3. In our next audio, we will turn to Revelation chapter 4. We'll do the whole chapter, verses 1 through 11, and we'll take a peek into the throne room of God as seen through the eyes of John's vision. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.